Welcome to the Bill Walton Show. Last week, I joined a, a long and growing list of people and organizations who've had their ideas censored by one of the social media companies. YouTube decided that a show that I did with Dr. Jay Richards about COVID-19 did not meet its, quote, community guidelines. Well, I can cite chapter and verse about how the show presented a well-researched and reasoned argument about the social, economic, and emotional costs of the lockdowns, and especially what are better alternatives to protect Americans. Today, I'd rather dig into the larger issue. What gives YouTube and the other social media companies the right to choose what should and should not be part of public debate? Why do they have the power to stand between us and our First Amendment rights? The answer is complex and understanding it gets right at the heart of their power. It's something called Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act. We all need to understand this thing called Section 230 and what it should or should not be doing to protect or interfere with our rights of free speech. With me to explain Section 230 and how to fix it is my frequent guest and friend, Klon Kitchen, director of the Center for Technology Policy in the National Security and Foreign Policy Institute at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome, Klon. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah. So you just posted something on the Heritage site, which I highly recommend everybody reading, entitled Section 230, Mend It, Don't End It. First, let's dig into it. What is, what is Section 230? <laughs> yeah, I'll do this as... as quickly and as less nerdy as, as I can, it's, um, it's a part of a statute, as you mentioned, called the Communications Decency Act, and Section 230 is, is a particular portion of that act that lays out uh, liability protections for, um, for internet companies. And the, the, beef, the brief background on it is um, in the early days of the internet, in, in the, in the mid-90s, uh, Congress decided that it wanted to free websites to be able to remove some of the worst things on the internet from, from their websites, things like pornography and, uh, you know, all kinds of um, defamatory language and that, and that kind of thing. Um, and so what they wanted to do is they created a protection called Section 230 that provided a liability protection for these companies if they were to remove that uh, content from their platforms so that they wouldn't be in fear of, um, of of being sued for abridging people's free speech rights. So the intent, the original intent of Section 230 is, is laudable and, 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 and it's easy to appreciate. You know, let's, let's keep the internet from becoming the worst part of itself. Um, however, uh, in the subsequent decades, multiple courts uh, at the state and federal level have interpreted those protections very very broadly, um, and have essentially equated them with free speech in and of itself. So for a piece of law that was intended to help um, websites remove awful material from the web, uh, from the internet, it has since been used to allow, just as a couple of examples, um, a, a revenge pornography website that was devoted to posting nude images without the consent of those in the pictures. Um, message boards have successfully defended themselves uh, using Section 230 when they knowing, knowingly facilitated illegal activity. Um, 
websites that have facilitated or at least made easier uh, child sexual exploitation materials. All of these things have been litigated and ultimately these websites protected by arguing that Section 230 allowed them to pursue these practices. Well, so it's, got, it's been a real problem. This, this, got, this, got, this is 1996. It was part of the Telecommunications Act. And it was Chris Cox and Ron Wyden, Republican and Democrat, who were concerned about, I guess it was a lawsuit, Stratton Oakmont versus uh, Prodigy Services. Mm -hmm. And Stratton Oakmont, which AKA the, the, the firm in Wolf of Wall Street, <laughs> got, got sued Prodigy and won $200 million because Prodigy hadn't been I guess I, I don't I don't remember the basis for the for the for the claim and the award, but somehow Prodigy lost, Stratton Oakmont won, um, and they want to do something about it. So they wrote something in that says you've you've got to uh, filter. Uh, what's their language? They say um, f blocking offensive materials online, and they've got something very specific about. Uh, Obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing. Absolutely, we want to block that. And then there's this word, or otherwise objectionable. Exactly. And it's those three words that people have driven a truck through. Yeah, that's right. As well as the, there's a second part about taking actions to enable or to make available information content providers or other technical means to restrict access. So that, that second part has also played a key part. But in much of the current political conversation, so that you opened at the beginning um, regarding you know, how you've been treated on, on one of these platforms. And it's that otherwise objectionable language that really has enabled that type of you know, increasingly politically motivated um, content moderation. And that's what's been a real problem here recently. So I, I've been confused about this because I thought Section 230 basically said and you've amplified it in your paper, basically said um, that if the platform, the, the social media companies don't weigh in one way or another, they're not going to be treated as a publisher and therefore they can't be sued. And they did that in 96 because I think the average American, well, the average American wasn't on the internet, but if it was, it was, what do you say, an average of like 30 minutes a month or something like that? Yeah, about 27, 27 minutes a month. In 1996, that's the average time an American spent online. And so they had a good idea. They wanted to, and by the way, we all lived happily back then without being online. It was pretty great. <laughs> but, but the idea was that they wanted, to, they wanted to promote this technology, allow tech, these social media companies to grow and grow they did. And now we're at a point where I think you, you point out that YouTube is uploading 500 hours of content or up, is, is uploaded to it every minute. Every minute of every day. Wow. So, but, so I, I thought it was, they were supposed to stay above the fray and not opine, yet Section 230 explicitly says, no, you're supposed to weigh in and censor objectionable material. Uh, but it really refers to pornography, sex trafficking, really obviously bad stuff that anybody left or right could agree is something that ought to be blocked. Yeah, and, and so and the the key point about Section Two Thirty is to recognize that it's a, it, it's it's the offering of a privilege. So it's not a constitutional right or anything like that. It's the government decided that we think it's in the national interest to um, 
free websites up if they choose to remove this type of uh, lewd content to be able to do so without fear of being kind of sued into oblivion. And, and so we created, um, you know, the statute. Now in 19, in one sense, it's forgivable. In 1996, we had no clue about what the internet was going to evolve to be. Certainly it's the idea of social media. Um, but you know, the, the main thrust of my paper is that, okay, it's 2020. Uh, the underlying purpose of this statute and the kind of ancillary benefits that it's provided to innovation and, and the industry in general are all good, but it clearly needs to be updated. And that's why, while some have argued that it should just be removed outright, we would say that it's, it's best to keep it, but it needs to better reflect uh, modern requirements and needs. Well, who can change it? It was enacted by Congress, signed into law by the president. Does that mean to change it, we've got to go back through Congress and again, have it signed into law by whomever the president is? That is, that is our preferred outcome. It's something that could easily be done. And in, in, in the paper, we make specific language recommendations, take this out, add this kind of uh, detail. And Congress could easily pass this. There is actually bipartisan support. There's different motivations for that support, but there's bipartisan support for reform of Section 230. And we actually think that with something like this, that is a far more preferable uh, way forward than just having executive agencies like the FCC um, start reinterpreting it. Because at, at the end of the day, uh, we believe the intent of Section 230 continues to be valid, but it needs to be updated. And the best way to update a statute's language is not through executive interpretation, but actually through congressional action. Now you explicitly don't think some of the other remedies that people have proposed are a good idea. For example, declaring the social media companies to be public utilities. Yeah, what I say specifically is, is that it's easy to empathize with those. <clears throat> so there are some, who um, feel very frustrated with their treatment by social media and, and feel like maybe social media is having a really bad impact on our society. And they see the benefits of Section 230 as, as kind of a political club to kind of hit these guys over the head, kind of get them back in their box and, and maybe humble them a little bit. That is entire, I, I'm entirely sympathetic to that feeling. I know how you come to that sense. But typically, when people begin arguing that these companies are, um, are public utilities uh, and they reach for Section 230 as a way of kind of getting back at them, from just a pure policy analysis standpoint, we think that's, that's not the best way forward. One, because in any normal use of, of, that of that terminology of public utility, it doesn't really fit. So public utility typically refers to some type of government-imposed monopoly. And these companies are very powerful. There are some clear dominators uh, in different sectors of the industry, but it is still true that all of them have multiple competitors. And to the degree that they enjoy any type of kind of decisive position, it's not government imposed. So it's just, a, it's just not an appropriate use of, of that terminology. And therefore, it, it, I don't think it's the best basis upon which to argue for some of these changes. Well, and, and that leads me towards the other thing, which is to, to break them up, use antitrust. And, you know, they're, the idea that they've got so much market power that they, uh, they're, they're too big and they've got to be broken up. 
I, I, I can think of a lot of reasons why I don't like that. Why, why don't you like it? Well, number one, I think antitrust is just an entirely separate issue. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the statute itself should, should stand and fall on its merits. And if, if we still think that its intended consequences are good, which I, I do, uh, then we should update it so that it's relevant and, and so that we prevent some of these uh, kind of potential abuses of the protections it provides. But I don't think that holding Section 230 over the head of industry as a, as a kind of weapon uh, or, or threat to kind of break them up in antitrust, uh, I think it's just conflating two issues that, that, that aren't relevant to, to one another. And look, there are some very good questions about what fair competition in the tech market space looks like right now. I'm, I'm very open to some of those conversations. But again, I think that conversation should proceed on the merits and not get confused and conflated with this other issue. Well, there, can we break it like this? Can you say, well, there's an economic issue, which is market power benefits the computer, consumer, too much pricing control on behalf of the, of the monopolist, if you will. And then there's the other piece of it, which is speech. And I don't think antitrust laws apply to issues involving speech. And it seems like Section 230 gets us focused on the, the, the speech issue. Is that, is that a fair way to think about it? Yeah, I, I think it is. And, and I do want to be clear. I mean, this is, a, this is a complex issue, not just because it's kind of, you know, law and, and there's language and that kind of thing. But, you know, the reality is, is that these companies also enjoy free speech. So, you know, when we talk about First Amendment, you know, it's, it's good and right that conservatives, uh, you know, fight for and push for free speech. That, that makes perfect sense. Um, but these companies also enjoy speech protections. And it's also important to understand that Section 230 doesn't only protect these companies. So, for example, Section 230 also protects the Heritage Foundation's website and what we can and cannot put on there and our choice not to post certain how, content versus how's it, how's, how's it how's it do that i didn't know that you guys you it, it because section 230 applies to all online uh kind of content uh platforms so any business who's operating online uh also enjoys the, these protections uh and that would include you know, the, the daily signal and, you know, and, and those kinds of things. That's why this gets kind of complex very quickly is because we have to understand that any major muscle movements we do in regards to Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or anything like that can have very significant unintended consequences for essentially anybody who's operating online, which is why in the paper I, I have that section called, you know, a word of warning uh, because conservatives have to think about that very carefully. Well, but I, I love your word of warning, but I'm really annoyed because I had a show that was a very, very uh, carefully reasoned alternate point of view to, 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 what, to lockdowns and to lots of other ways to protect Americans. And yet uh, YouTube in its wisdom, and then we, we switched to plan B and put it on Vimeo. And we got an even stronger notice from Vimeo that what we were doing violated its, uh, what do they call it? You cannot upload videos that depict or encourage self-harm, falsely claim that mass tragedies are hoaxes, or perpetrate false or misleading claims about vaccine safety. Well, that's just crazy. I mean, our, our show had none of that. We weren't, even, we weren't even on that planet. So when they do that, though, you and I talked before we got started here about the public trust issue. You yeah. want to 
speak to that? Because I think that's why this has become such a, an important issue. Precisely. So the point you're raising is, is the point that features prominently uh, in this paper. And that is that, look, the reality is, is that these companies have squandered the public trust. Um, and, and, it's, and it's a bipartisan frustration with them. Um, it's, you know, having rules that we can all argue about as to whether or not they should have that rule and, and, you know, what should or should not be allowed on the platform, that's one thing. But the underlying concern is that these rules are not being applied fairly and that it's particularly corrosive and, and kind of suppressive uh, against, um, against conservatives. So, you know, throughout the paper, I, I have, a, I have a, a couple of stats from, you know, reputable polling like Pew and Gallup that, that talks about, um, you know, three quarters of U.S. adults believe that social media companies, quote, intentionally censor political viewpoints that they find objectionable. So three quarters of Americans believe that. And, and 55% of Democrats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 50. Yeah, exactly. More than 50% uh, uh, of Democrats think that's true, you know, and, you know, 80% of Republicans also have little to no confidence that social media companies have the ability to determine which posts on their platform should be labeled as inaccurate or misleading. And again, a, a majority of Democrats as well. Well, so how do we, I mean, how, how do we fix this? You say mend it, don't end it. Uh, mm -hmm. You've got, you've got some language changes that you think would be a deft way to, uh, to, uh, to fix it. Yep. Yeah. So uh, the, the bottom line is, is there's some opaque language in the statute that just needs to be clarified. Um, so for example, one of the things that we need to do is uh, we need to strike that otherwise objectionable line. We need to take those two words out because it's just too big of a gap that you can drive a truck through. Um, and I think doing that helps us to begin to narrow the scope and application of section 230 much closer to its, its intended purpose. Um, Beyond that, there's something called the good faith provision. At the beginning of the, um, of the text, it talks about these companies are going to be protected if they act in good faith. But good faith isn't defined, right? And so we think that in an effort particularly um, to cut down on some of this biased application of these rules, we need to further refine and explain what good faith actually means. And that would include um, any type, you know, or it would preclude any type of, of biased application of whatever rules they set, anything that's intended to hurt any type of particular political view or, or, or things like that. Um, and we think that that's essential. Um, we, we also think that, and this is the, the nub of it, and this is going to be a heavy lift for Congress and something that we'll be engaged in further, but we need to clarify the line between the normal editing that goes on with content online versus what actually makes you a publisher who no longer enjoys Section 230. So in the run-up to the election, Twitter and others have started attaching labels to tweets and to other content where they say, you know, get more facts or this is, to, this is contested or... Now, under the current reading of Section 230, that doesn't violate the, uh, the publisher rule, which if they were ruled to be publishers, then they would lose those, those protections. We think that those types of labels clearly affect how a piece of content is interpreted, how it spreads and how it's shared. Yeah. And so Congress needs to think a little more clearly about when have you crossed the line to becoming a publisher? Well, they've, got, they've gotten very cute on this. I mean, you don't have to cut and paste to be an editor. I mean, they do things like uh, your, 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 uh, your information 
is missing context. Um, you know, you got PolitiFact, and you've got everybody now gaming the fact checkers, and yep. and what are you? What is what is? You know, get the facts label was applied to a Donald Trump tweet, but then Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren, one of my favorites. Um, has a tweet up that has not been taken down saying racism, is, racism isn't a bug of Donald Trump's administration, it's a feature. Racism is built into his platform, and yet uh, Jack Dorsey's left that up, to, as far as I know, to this day. Yeah, it's still up uh, with no label, uh, no you know context, no nothing. And, that, and that's where people are legitimately frustrated because it's, and, you know, they were in uh, before Congress here recently, and you know, several policymakers made the point of like, okay, wait a minute, you're, you're labeling Donald Trump, but you've still got the Ayatollah of Iran denying the Holocaust, <laughs> and you're not doing anything about that. I think Jack Dorsey admitted to that on uh, in his in his congressional. He did. Jack <laughs> Dorsey did not did not do well in that in that conversation. He 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 did not do well. Well, I think nose rings and a Hoshiman beard don't help either. Well, it certainly plays to a type. <laughs> So let's, I, I just put a human face on it. That was Jack Dorsey. But explain to me, who are these social media companies? I know them by, you know, we all know them by name. We all use them, Twitter, Facebook, Google, um, Instagram, on and on. How many people, for example, in Google or in YouTube or in Facebook would be monitoring posts and videos and things like that for content? And is so, it people or is it an algorithm or a combination? Um, Yep. It's a combination everywhere, um, and it depends by the company. So um, YouTube has uh, thousands. Facebook has thousands. Uh, I'm not sure about Twitter. The way this typically happens is um, the first line of engagement or of, of kind of content moderation is typically algorithmic. So they have ways of looking at how a piece of content is being shared or spreading um, and being able to determine, okay, yeah, you know, there's something going on here. And then it kind of gets kicked into a process of, of further review and refinement and ultimately up to kind of people. Now, as you mentioned before, we talked about 500 hours of, uh, of YouTube video being uploaded every minute of every day. You know, there's a lot of marketing around these companies and they like to portray themselves as being these kind of omniscient, omnicapable institutions. But the reality is, is that they are completely unprepared to deal with the scope and scale of activity on their platforms. And, um, you know, it's a couple hundred thousand pictures uploaded every minute of every day on Instagram, for example. And so <clears throat> the way this gets gamed is um, a group of, of typically left um, politically aligned individuals will find a piece of conservative content that they don't like and they'll flag it. And if a piece of content gets enough flags, it automatically gets moved, it, it kind of gets quarantined and, and kind of moved out until it can be reviewed. And then, you know, a reviewer will then make an assessment. Well, you know, that tends to happen to conservatives more, or at least it feels like that happens to conservatives more than it does liberal groups. In part, that's because typically conservatives aren't sitting around just kind of flagging liberal content. We're living our lives doing our stuff. Um, but this type of gaming of the system has become. You, 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 couldn't pay, you couldn't pay me enough to sit around and flag liberal content. It sounds awful. <laughs> no, it, it sounds awful. But even even the fact checkers, though. So you yeah. mentioned PolitiFact, and we came out pretty aggressively on this recently. Uh, there was a, 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 a series of conservative political ads that were being put up on Facebook. 
And one of the, one of the fact checkers in, in Facebook's fact checking program, PolitiFact, which is left-leaning, they couldn't rate it false. And so instead they rated it as um, needs more context. And their justification for that was, well, we don't know what the future is. And so the things, all the bad things that you say are gonna happen, it's impossible to know. So people need more context. Well, what that effectively did was, it still prevented those ads from being run as political ads. And so PolitiFact gamed the system. They didn't have to rate it as false. They just had to say, hmm, needs more context. And that killed the ads. And that type of a gaming of the, of the fact checking system is now rampant on the left side of things and something that we are being very aggressive about calling out. Well, the thing I find particularly troubling is it, it, it's beginning to feel like we've got Pravda. Because one of the things that happened with us is I think they're legitimate arguments of, uh, and alternative ways to protect people against this, uh, this virus. And what we've morphed from is a, is a virus uh, pandemic to a pandemic of fear. And my concern just to the show is we've got to do something about the fear that's gripping America, the fear that's gripping the world. And so we got to be less draconian and more, more thoughtful about how we, um, we deal with this. And yet, I, I, you know, you read what happened to us with Google. They said we violated community guidelines. Well, we looked at the content guidelines for COVID-19, and you run, run across this line. You can't make any claim that contradicts local health authorities or the World Health Organization. Now, think about that. That means all the great thinkers, all the great scientists, all the great uh, medical practitioners are either local health authorities or the World Health Organization. You know, I, I happen to believe a lot of smart people don't want to go to work in either one of those places. <laughs> and, so, and you got a lot of smart guys out of Stanford and all over the world that are, that are coming out against some of these uh, pro proclamations. And yet that's what uh, YouTube is hanging its hat on. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this, this, is, diff I mean, <clears throat> this is difficult because a part of what they're trying to do with that policy is specifically work against foreign influence operations on COVID-19 and the like, right? And we get swept up in that. And that's why the commingling of kind of American freedom of speech issues with the very real concerns about foreign activities uh, and manipulation online is, is really difficult. And, you know, the reality is, is we do know that, that, that Russia and others are actively sowing all kinds of misinformation about COVID-19 in terms of its origin with the U.S. military and all kinds of other things. And, you know, look, here's, here's the context that a lot of people, you know, just haven't had the privilege to, to know. I, this goes back to, I spent 15 years in the U.S. intelligence community. And when we first, when the government first started engaging with these companies, it was engaging them and asking them for help in cutting down on terrorist propaganda and recruit material online. We came to them and said, look, we can't remove this stuff on Facebook. Facebook, you've got to remove it. And they responded and they've actually gotten really good. It's not perfect, but they've gotten really good at identifying and, and removing that content. So we kind of created this monster and now it's kind of turned on us. And it's, uh, it's a real problem. And there's enough of a legitimate justification for some of these actions that it, it makes kind of decisively calling them out a little trickier. And so that's one of the reasons, again, why we're trying to, to reframe and refine 
the legal protections that they enjoy to kind of move us in a better direction. Well, the Russians are small bit players. The Chinese are really the ones I think that are all Certainly over. Certainly on COVID. I've, I've, yeah. done, I've done seven or eight shows on, on various aspects of China and my YouTube comment section, I, I might as well just put it up in Chinese because I got so much uh, interest in these shows. They don't quite agree with what I'm saying, but, uh, you know, it, but also the censorship, uh, you know, we think we got taken out because the show was so popular, all of a sudden we'd gone from a few thousand to many, many, many thousand uh, viewers in a very short period of time, a couple hours, a day maybe. Isn't that about right? asking Maureen here. And we think it was just the sheer popularity of what we put out that triggered the uh, the censorship. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible that, again, um, you know, let, let's say that was the case, that you started growing by leaps and bounds in a couple of hours, that likely would have run across some of these left-leaning groups who see content like that spreading, don't like it, and yeah. flag it. That's that what gets happened. It up, that gets it kicked up the chain, and then they take action. That's what happened. Well, we got a we've got a minute left. Uh, let, let's talk about why it's in the interest of the social media companies to help us do something about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the the bottom line is is that these companies have clearly squandered the public trust. And what we're offering in this paper, and more broadly, as Heritage engages on tech policy issues is a rational and coherent way forward where the market and the public dialogue get to remain free and fair. That's what we're trying to drive at. Um, up until this point, these companies have, have kind of stubbornly refused to, um, to engage in this conversation seriously. Uh, I think on both sides of the political aisle, the patience in that conversation is running out. Um, this kind of middle road of, of, of mending it, not ending it, Section 230 is, is I think, going to be one of the last opportunities for us to, to get this right. And if we don't get it right, if there's still a, a kind of stubborn resistance, if we continue to get the Heisman from the, the tech industry, then even worse outcomes are going to become much more politically viable. And um, we all need to take a second and think about this very, very carefully. Klon, thank you. I'm, we're just talking with Klon Kitchen, Director Center for Technology Policy at Heritage Foundation, and he's penned, a, I think, a very, very smart approach to this whole social media censorship issue, and it's called Section 230, Mend It or End It, and it's on the Heritage website, and Klon, uh, as always, great talking with you. Uh, to be continued. Always. Thank you for the time. All right. Thanks, Klon. And thank you for joining me on the, uh, the Bill Walton Show, and we will also be talking with you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes.